I pay homage to the Buddha. I pay homage to the Dhamma. I pay homage to the Sangha. Well, I want to start first by uh, wishing everyone a happy Lunar New Year. I also, before I get started, want to uh, wish uh, Venerable Santi a happy birthday. <laughs> Hope you're doing well, Bante. Happy birthday. Wonderful. So, we find ourselves uh, gathering on this uh, Sunday on Valentine's Day, uh, which, you know, I, I got to be honest, was uh, never one of my favorite holidays. It's just so poorly planned, you know, coming in when it does in February. You know, we've gone through November, Thanksgiving, we've gone through December, Christmas, and New Year, and everything. So right after New Year, we essentially have six weeks, just enough time to try to turn our lives around and give up before we're expected to be romantic with somebody, right? That's the idea. Just that time, just enough to go into the year with resolutions and ambitions and just enough time for everything to fall apart. You expected a journal every day and you find your journal has become a great coaster, a great place for your remote and your cup of coffee to just rest right on top of. That expensive treadmill you got just became a very unwieldy and impractical coat hanger and clothing rack. And you went six months or rather six weeks without trying to eat any carbs and then you just waffled down an entire deep dish pizza and now it's time to be romantic. Probably not going to happen, right? And then we find ourselves after this year all of 2020, most of us in some kind of state of hibernation. And I can't even imagine the single people out there trying to make this stuff work. But let me tell you, being married, same thing. It's kind of hard to, to really up the romance. You know, you spent a bunch of time both making nice, deep impressions on your couch together while you watch Netflix, and then now you got to try to have small talk on a Sunday. Probably not happening either. So I thought that this Sunday, this Valentine's Day, rather than focusing on the romance and the love and the flowers and the chocolate. And I know some of you people try to fool yourselves. No, but it's a chocolate-dipped strawberry, you know? They even kept the green stem on. It's practically a salad. No, I see you. I see you. So instead of focusing on that, what I want to focus on instead is falling in love with meditation. I think it's time in all of our lives to really make a commitment. You know, go steady with meditation. Time to create a lifelong committed relationship with meditation. So I thought we'd cover that today. And the reason why is because I don't see people generally having a whole lot of love for meditation. A lot of the time when I talk to people, what they have to say about meditation is how hard it is. The trials and tribulations of meditation. How stressful they find it. How they sit down and all this stuff arises in the mind and all this greed and aversion and delusion and ignorance, and they just don't know what to do. And that practice they thought they were going to have, some of them making resolutions on January 1st, they think they're going to meditate 30, 40, 50 minutes, an hour every day. And they sit down for about 10, and then off the cushion they go to spend the rest of the day trying to not think about meditation. A lot of conflict there. 
So before I, I get started into the, the deep issues there, I thought I would try to set the tone by reading a, a very small passage out of this book. See, uh, Mary Oliver is, is new to me, but apparently she's one of the most loved uh, poets in the United States, a great American poet that uh, over time people have come across and I haven't. Unfortunately, she passed away a few years ago, but she has this long legacy and was only this year I found her. And so I pur purchased uh, one of her, her book of essays. This one is Upstream. And there's this one essay where she's talking about the creative process, talking about being an artist or a writer. But I think if you listen to this, these small parts, you'll realize that what she's saying, you know, completely relates to what it means to be a meditator and the kind of qualities we seek to develop and nurture and cultivate. So she says in her essay of power and time, creative work needs solitude. It needs concentration without interruptions. It needs the whole sky to fly in and no eye watching it until it comes to that certainty which it aspires to, but does not necessarily have all at once. Privacy, then, a place apart, to pace, to chew pencils, to scribble, and erase, and scribble again. But just as often, if not more often, the interruption comes not from another, but from the self itself, or some other self within the self, that whistles and pounds upon the door panels and tosses itself splashing into the pond of meditation. And what does it have to say? That you must phone the dentist. That you're out of mustard. That your Uncle Stanley's birthday is two weeks hence. You react, of course. Then you return to your work, only to find that the imps of idea have fled back into the mist. It is this internal force, this intimate interrupter, whose tracks I would follow. The world sheds in the energetic way of an open and communal place its many greetings, as a world should. What quarrel can there be with that? But that the self can interrupt the self, and does, is a darker and more curious matter. Especially at the beginning, there is a need of discipline as well as solitude and concentration. No one yet has made a list of places where the extraordinary may happen and where it may not. Still, there are indications. Among crowds and drawing rooms, among easements and comforts and pleasures, it is seldom seen. It likes the out-of-doors. It likes the concentrating mind. It likes solitude. It is more likely to stick to the risk-taker than the ticket-taker. It isn't that it would disparage comforts or the set routines of the world, but that, that its concern is directed to another place. Its concern is the edge, and the making of a form out of the formlessness that is beyond the edge. Of this there can be no question. Creative work requires a loyalty as complete as the loyalty of water to the force of gravity. So you can see then why I chose that in relation to meditation. I especially like that part at the end about loyalty. See, I was joking about being in a committed relationship with meditation, but it's very much like that, isn't it? 
that we have to be loyal to the practice, committed to it, disciplined in approaching it. And Mary Oliver points this out about the creative process, about being an artist, being a writer, being a poet. And we understand immediately when it's put that way that you have to carve out some space in your life for that kind of solitude, for that type of, of discipline to really mature into something beautiful. And we understand then when someone's a, a novelist or a playwright or a painter or a poet. And yet we don't often think about it that way when we talk about meditation, that it is much the same process, that we have to make space for meditation within our lives and, and not the other way around. Right? Oftentimes people have the wrong mindset that when rather than creating a, a life conducive to meditation, they want to create a meditation conducive to their life. And it often doesn't work out that way. So at the very beginning, we have this uh, call to seclusion, something I, I bring up a lot, and, and people often don't know why. And I think it's because we have convinced ourselves, at least in the West, but I think well beyond as well, that uh, meditation happens in the midst of a chaotic life, that you can still do the things you want to do and the way you want to do them, and meditation will sort of take up of the mental cleansing, the after effects of what you've done. You can sit down to the action movie, have a shot of tequila and do whatever else, and then meditation will work, work all that out for you. When it's often life needing to be in service of meditation than meditation being in service of life. And that's not necessarily on a true ontological level, but on the very phenomenological way we approach life. We have to live in service to the practice, in service to the path that has meditation as, in many ways, the hub of the wheel, so to speak, the, the main part of the practice. So we have to be willing to sacrifice and really bear down and, and be disciplined, be committed, be loyal. I love that phrasing like water to gravity. And we see that the Buddha approached it that way, that saying that meditation always begins with seclusion. And people often wonder what that means. What does it mean to live a secluded life? Does it mean a sheltered life? Does it mean a, a hidden private life? Oftentimes what seclusion means is being secluded from the type of things that that we react to, that we crave and cling to, that we hunger for. Oftentimes it takes the form of, of sensual pleasure. That's what we're secluding ourselves from. Or rather, at the very least, the inclination for sensual pleasure, sensual craving. Basically our triggers, if we want to talk about it in a psychotherapeutic way. You know, you think about people who are very, very attached to their cell phones, right? Everyone's got theirs close by, don't they? And if someone actually has cell phone addiction, internet addiction, social media addiction. What they could do, and what a lot of people do, is try to just grit their teeth through the addiction. They've got the phone right there, usually in their pocket, no more than two feet away on a given moment. And there it is, buzzing at them, sending little notifications. Don't you want to check Twitter? Don't you want to check Facebook? Ooh, you got another email, right? doesn't matter that you have thousands in your inbox you never read, but there they are. And what most people do is they just, they just bear it, and they bear it, and they try to exert willpower, and they try really, really hard and to not check that phone. And then eventually they cave, because there it is. 
they've done studies on willpower and they find out that people who live a more disciplined life don't actually have more willpower than your average person. The reason they're more disciplined is because they create a kind of life that requires less willpower. That same person who wants to overcome internet and cell phone addiction might be very well better off to turn the cell phone off and put it in a drawer somewhere until it's actually needed. And in that way, there's less of that stress that's there in the back of their head because there's always the temptation, always the ability, always the easy access to something. And a lot of the time, that's the kind of thing that people need to do if they want to actually see results in meditation. At the very beginning, there's a kind of seclusion that needs to happen, secluded from our triggers. And so that's why the Buddha encouraged living out in the forests, on the margins of society. A lot of us, especially lay people, don't really have that kind of, of time or ability. But what we do have is the freedom to shape our lives in a way that's conducive to the practice and conducive to meditation in such a way where we create space. That's really what we're doing, creating space for the mind to become expansive, to become large. But oftentimes, when people meditate, what they end up focusing on instead are what we call uh, the five hindrances. And if you've been to enough talks and you've read enough books and studied enough Dharma, you've probably heard of the five hindrances already. And the way they're often taught is, is as hindrances to meditation. Now, I'll go over the five in a, in a moment, but I will say that I think that's actually the wrong way to approach it because what happens is that when people think that, that those five are a hindrance to meditation, what ends up happening is they believe that they're not meditating correctly or seeing results until those five hindrances are entirely eradicated, which means that if any of the five come up, and here they are, sensual desire, ill will, sloth and drowsiness, restlessness and anxiety, and doubt. If any of those five arise in the meditation, they're no longer meditating, and they're a failure at meditation, and they'll never be any good because thoughts of ill will came up, thoughts of you know, anxious thoughts came up, there's doubt that arises, all sorts of things that come up. Those five cover a lot of groundwork in terms of negative states of mind and the negative qualities that we have in the mind. And people get really down on that. They either think that if those states arise at all, they have failed as a meditator, or if those states arise, then that's exactly what they need to fight and combat head-on in their meditation. I often have thoughts of ill will, someone will say, and they just want to punch any thought of ill will down, not recognizing that that very activity is having ill will towards thoughts of ill will. You're basically trying to combat hindrances with more hindrances. You're trying to combat poison with poison. And it's a losing strategy. It really is. And people have really adverse reactions to these things. And obviously they should. But once you, be, once you become a meditator, you become aware of things that were always there to begin with. You always had doubt. You always had ill will. You always had sloth and drowsiness. Anxiety, for sure. What American isn't anxious, honestly, right? It's one of the big things we're all dealing with, depression, anxiety, all of that. So we're no stranger to it. But then once you meditate, it seems like that's all you see. And you just want to punch at all of it. You want to push it all away, fight it. And that's not the strategy at all. When you read the suttas, you see that the Buddha didn't teach to fight the hindrances head on. Instead, 
he taught his disciples to focus on techniques and tools that cultivated on their own will dispel and weaken the hindrances all on their own. That's often the strategy. Nothing, nothing in Buddhism is about fighting something head-on because if the, one of our problems is craving and clinging, we don't want to cause more craving and clinging. And if one of our problems as, as Buddhists is aversion, it doesn't make any sense to fight aversion with aversion. So the Buddha gives us lots of tools as a meditator. And one of the tools that he, he described precisely in contrast to the five hindrances were the five factors for awakening. And the way those are taught these days, I would also disagree with, that they're taught sometimes by some people as qualities that you have uh, upon becoming an arhat, upon reaching the goal. And in that way, they're not very useful because they're seen as things so far beyond where you are now. When in truth, when the Buddha talked about cultivating skillful qualities of mind and uh, you know, attenuating, breaking up, and, and causing negative states of mind to fade away, it's under the assumption that all of these qualities already exist within us. Some traditions talk about this as, as Buddha nature and you know, innate Buddhahood and all this stuff, and I honestly think a lot of that is, is semantics. What we might say is that we have a potential for these qualities because they are already, the seeds of them are already in us. We already have seeds of mindfulness in us. That's actually the first of the seven factors. We already have the seeds of, of investigation of qualities, basically discernment, uh, what becomes wisdom over time. We already have the seed within us of energy or persistence. We already have that seed within us of rapture and calm and concentration and equanimity. They're already there. But like seeds, they need to be watered. They need to be nurtured. They need good soil. And that's a part of that seclusion that's needed. Creating space for meditation to really, really love the process and to focus on those good qualities. Because like I said, I think what happens a lot of the time is people end up focusing on all the negative qualities of mind. And it's not that those things should be ignored, but rather they shouldn't be fought head on. The Buddha says instead that when you see a negative quality, you look at its contrasting skillful quality and seek to nurture that, strengthen that. And as that strengthens, the other often weakens and eventually fades and falls away. There's a good example of that actually in one of the suttas. It's uh, called the Kaya Sutta. It's, uh, it's in the Sanyutta Nikaya 4626, for those of you who are studying uh, the Pali Canon. And Kaya is a very interesting word because people often translate it as ending, but it has other connotations in there of like destroying, of eradicating, but also of decaying. So another thing to keep in mind is how the path is gradual over time, over the course of moments and hours and days throughout your life. These are the things you're working on, the things you're cultivating, the things you're developing. And as they develop and as they strengthen and as they become a stronger aspect of your, of your life, stronger qualities of mind, those other things that we might call hindrances or poisons, decay, atrophy, break down and fall apart and eventually get blown away in the wind, gone. So the Buddha says... 
that when someone develops mindfulness as a factor for awakening, it is dependent on seclusion, dependent on dispassion, dependent on cessation, and then it becomes abundant, enlarged, immeasurable, without ill will. In such a person, mindfulness as a factor for awakening is developed dependent on those things, and then craving is abandoned. And that's true of all the other factors, all the way from mindfulness to analysis of qualities, persistence, rapture, calm, concentration, equanimity, all of these qualities. And they lead to this abandoning of craving. From the abandoning of craving, action, kamma, is abandoned. And action and kamma in the sense of samsaric action, things that entrench us further into samsara. From the abandoning of action, stress is abandoned. Thus, from the ending of craving comes the ending of action, from the ending of action, the ending of stress. So, let's step back and look at the qualities, because I do think that they're worth exploring. For example, mindfulness, at the very, very top. How do people often approach mindfulness? Well, most, most people these days will tell you that mindfulness is really about bare attention. That's it. Just watching things. And I would say that that particular uh, interpretation of mindfulness is part of the problem. Because you watch everything in your mind, and you see all the unskillful stuff. And they often drown out the skillful. So, when we read the suttas instead, we see that mindfulness, as sati, actually has a lot of different characteristics, mindfulness being one that mind that what we call sati has in it ardency so a certain determination to to and a, a real concerted effort to do something it has alertness which is usually what we think by awareness and then mindfulness as it's translated which is really a kind of remembering or an ability to keep things in mind essentially when we meditate we're supposed to keep the dhamma in mind the buddha's teachings in mind remember the teachings, and that's actually sati in that sense. So what we end up having to do is when we sit in, in meditation, once we're sitting in seclusion, mindfulness comes to the fore in the sense that we remember our duty, our task in this moment, which is to be aware of everything that's coming up in the mind in respect to the Dhamma, to see and find the skillful qualities and nurture them, strengthen them, Right? That's actually why the second factor is analysis of qualities. This one can mean different things. Part of the problem with studying Buddhism is everyone translates the same term with different names and it confuses everybody. The same idea, Dhamma Vichaya, you'll see in different ways. Dhamma Vichaya, you'll see as uh, analysis of Dhamma, analysis of the Dharma. You'll see it as analysis of qualities. You'll see it as. Um, like a measurement or of different states and so on. Everyone comes up with their own thing. But the gist of it is that the investigation comes down to skillful and unskillful mental qualities. What is skillful? And we'll see, like we saw in that particular sutta, what's skillful leads to good feelings. It leads to qualities like rapture and calm. Because I think we know intuitively when we, when we apply discernment, what agitates the mind? 
What causes undue stress in the mind? What really boils us over? And on the other side, what is really soothing? What really nurtures us? What makes us feel good in the mind and the body? And we seek those things out and try to make them stronger. We apply persistence, perseverance, energy in that way. We try to be energetic in our meditation in that we actively seek out skillfulness throughout in a way that's gentle, in a way that enlivens us, in a way that leads to rapture. And if you haven't experienced that in, in your meditation, I'll tell you that if you focus on the path in this way with these seven factors, you will find ways of investigating the breath and the body and the mind in such a way that you will find avenues for rapture. Ways in which everything opens up inside, inside the body, inside the mind. And there's this joy that arises because you realize that you're giving your mind real nourishment, real food that's not dependent on, sec on uh, sensual gratification. Because that's often what happens. We're, we're always looking outward for our, our sources of food, our sources of nourishment. Outward, outward, outward. What's in the news? What's on TV? What's my friend doing? And, and outward and outward and outward. And the path is always, always telling us to turn inward. Inward for our source of nourishment. Inward for our source of food inward for our source of joy and delight that can be found in meditation, in that peace, because that's what it becomes. The rapture that we feel when we start really feeling like it's going right, over time settles into a peace, a calm, what some people translate as a tranquility. And we cultivate that through concentration, which people often uh, interpret and translate as concentration, which in the English language often means something very tight and held very strongly, like, ooh, i got to concentrate for my test. And that's absolutely not the right way. Concentration more in the sense of gathering together, bringing together as one, one mind, one body, one breath, all together. That is concentration and bringing together, collecting. And when we do that, Everything opens up because we have this hub through which to see all of the body and all of the mind. We create a still point, a place through which we can survey the landscape. Because oftentimes we're pushed this way and that way kind of in a storm. And if we create a still point, a place to gather everything together, we have a place to survey the whole landscape. All right? Kind of a funny way of putting it, but if you've seen The Lion King, right, the good one, the cartoon, not the quote, live-action one that's awful. But if you watch that, there's that scene where, where Mufasa's there with Simba, and he says, Simba, take a look, right? They go to a high point where they can survey everything. That's actually what we try to do in meditation. That when people talk about um, ekaga or ekagatta, the, the one-pointedness, the way that's often translated, right? In Pali, that one point can often mean the point of a mountain, as in gathering together up. And so that one point can be that point through which you can survey the landscape of your mind and your body. And in that way, really, really do something great. And equanimity. Understanding what's in your control and what's outside of your control. 
Kind of a weird stoic lesson in that, but there is a bit of that. The concept that what we can control is inside here. What we can control is the development of good qualities. That is enough to attenuate and eventually eradicate unskillful qualities. That's it. Now, not easy, but simple. But the development of these seven factors on their own is enough to have deep and profound and transformative meditation. A meditation that you'll want to gravitate to. A meditation that you will delight in. A place of happiness and peace, not dependent on other factors from outside, but something that you can cultivate to be your own nourishment. To really nourish you and make you strong enough to see through these defilements, these hindrances, and these poisons, and find release. So, I found this quote today. I happened to be looking at some old memories and some stuff I'd written down and stuff I'd saved. And there's this one quote, if I can find it very quickly, that I think sums up this whole thing I've been talking about. And the quote is, Change is the essence of life. Be willing to surrender what you are for what you could become. And I think I will end with that.